The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association, and welcome to Retail Therapy, a podcast proudly brought to you by American Express. The ARA is Australia's largest and oldest retail association, representing around 7,500 independent national and international members. Each episode, I'll be chatting with a leader in Australia's retail industry right here in the Amex Lounge, including the CEOs of some of the biggest retailers in Australia and across the globe. We'll be finding out what makes them tick, what defines their leadership style, and how they got to the top of their game. So join me for some retail therapy as we ask these questions and more and navigate our way through the retail industry, Australia's largest private sector employer. For more information about the work we do at the Australian Retailers Association, head to our website, retail.org.au. Joining me today for some retail therapy in the Amex Lounge is Pip Marlowe, the CEO of Salesforce for Australia and New Zealand. Salesforce is a global leader in customer relationship management, and they do a wonderful job in helping businesses better understand their customers through innovation and insights, helping them grow, increasing sales, and much, much more. I'm delighted to have Pip with me today to chat about her career to date, all things Salesforce, and the work they're doing with retailers in particular. Pip, welcome. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here with you. Now, Pip, you were born and raised in New Zealand, live in Sydney, have a Scottish husband, and your two daughters were born in the United States. It sounds like quite a diverse household for you at home. So tell me more. Well, I think you forgot the two cavoodles who were born in Australia. I think they should at least get a mention at this point. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> well, it's interesting. I'd say one in four Australians is born overseas in our house. It's all four of us. And um, I, uh, you know, I am a Kiwi and um, I know there's a few of us living here in Australia, but I always say um, I, I think I live in one of the best countries on the planet. I, I love Australia and I feel very grateful that the country has, you know, let me and my family live here. So it's um, quite, a, quite a gift. But I do feel a bit like a global citizen. Um, and our house has lots of different accents. And I think that's, um, you, you know, it's, you said it's a diverse household. And I think you and I hold a very similar value around, you know, diversity and inclusion and, and the experiences I've had, you know, living here in Australia, New Zealand, living in the US, you get to experience a lot of different cultures that I think open your eyes. And I, you know, I love trying to help um, my two daughters um, see lots of different perspectives as they're looking at the world and as they're looking at people of different cultures and, and backgrounds. And now uh, we often, you know, talk about that at the dinner table. So yeah, it's um, it's definitely very diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are we we are proud Aussie caboodle owners. Well, let's talk about your career today. 21 years at Microsoft, including six years as managing director. You also worked at Suncorp as CEO for Customer Marketplace. What was it like for you in those roles and what drew you to the world of Salesforce? Yeah, you've taken me back in time. When you age me when you tell people I've worked yeah, you don't, you don't, years I don't think you're that old. I don't think you're that old. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky we're just doing audio today. People might challenge that. Oh, look, I um, first of all, I'd say I fell into IT. You know, I fell into it by chance, but I certainly stayed in it by choice. Um, I joined the technology industry in the 90s and the world was changing. You know, Bill had a um, Bill Gates had a vision of a desktop on 
a PC on every desktop and changing the planet and democratizing technology to really let consumers take advantage of that, not just people with big, you know, mainframes having access. Um, and so those early years in technology, you know, taught me a lot about innovation and using technology to solve problems. Um, and I, I really love that. And, and working at Microsoft was a, an incredible experience. And, you know, worked with them for um, eight years in the US at their head office in Seattle. So I feel like I lived through a number of really rapid iterations of technology. I mean, I always still laugh when I talk to my two daughters. I mean, smartphones didn't exist to like, you know, 2007-ish. I remember my first mobile phone was the size of a brick. Um, there's more technology and power in a smartphone today than there was in you know, massive amounts of computing power back, back in the 90s. And so I, I really taught me to embrace innovation, to look at how um, you use technology to solve a problem. Technology in itself isn't an answer. It's how you use it um, to get the job done, to help you connect with your customers or educate people or solve healthcare issues um, and it really was an exciting time, I think, you know, living through the 90s and then the, you know, the 2000s. But after like 21 years at Microsoft, I had to ask myself, is this going to be the last name on my CV? <laughs> and when I was starting to question about what I wanted to do after talking to customers for years about how you use technology to solve problems, I actually wanted to go to the other side to go and work you know, at an end user and you're an Australian company and really put into practice everything that I've been, you know, talking about for decades. And so I really proudly went to work for a company called Suncorp. So they're a very large insurer and a smaller bank. Um, and they were really, you know, at a period of time that they were looking at, you know, digital transformation. How do you connect differently with your customers? Meet them in the channel that they want to be at at a time where, you know, I think banks had done a really good job of taking you out of line and putting you online certainly for basic services, but really what's the future of home lending in that way or small business loans and how do you allow for self-service and digitals to give access to more people? So I went and did uh, almost three years in banking and insurance, but the one thing that I really missed um, through that period was a broader you know, innovation agenda, uh, looking at technology, taking global insights, bringing them um, to customers. And so when Salesforce uh, came calling, I have to say it was uh, a company I'd always heard of. I knew it had great technology, great technology, helping you know, companies connect with customers. But um, it wasn't the technology that got me across the line to go to work for them at all. It was the values of the organisation. Right. I, um, I met our founder and CEO through the process, Mike Benioff, and when I was talking to him about you know, coming to work there, he said, what do you want to know? What do you want to know, Pip, to you know, make you feel like this is the right company for you? And I asked him a question. I said, Mark, tell me what you and the company have sacrificed for your values. Tell me when you've walked away from revenue or from business because living your values was more important than making a profit. And he shared a story with me about a state in the US that was looking at changing their legislation. And if their legislation went through, it would inhibit the rights of um, our LGBTQ community to have equal access to marriage. And he went to the governor of that state and he said, if you pass this legislation, we won't invest in the state, we won't hold events here, we won't grow our footprint here. And then he went to every employee in that state and he said, if this legislation passed, we will pay for you to move to a state where you have equal access and equal rights mm. and we will give you a job in that state. So he was prepared to say to a very large government customer, 
you know, we don't support this. And if you if you do this, then we're not going to invest in your, in your state. And he's prepared to put dollars on the line to locate and give people jobs in different states wow. to, to live to our values. One of our four core values is equality. And that was how he was bringing um, the value of equality to life. So I thought, you know what, if a company and the CEO are standing up for that, that's a, that's a person I want to work for. That's, 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 I want to work for. that's an amazing story. We're going to come back to that in a moment because we did meet, both meet during marriage equality. And I want to share, we, we, we'll have uh, share a few stories there, but um, you've, you're an amazing businesswoman. You've had a stellar career and it's still a stellar career. Uh, um, ahead of you. You've been in senior positions. You've been a coach and mentor. You're a role model to many women and men, I would add, as well. Whilst doing all this, you've also raised a family. So what has the work-life balance been like for you during this time? It's interesting. I always say I really don't like the term work-life balance You know, because when I think about balance, what comes into my head is a picture of scales and you're trying to get that perfect balance and nothing is out of whack. And I just don't think that's reality of everyday life. Um, so I think about conscious work-life choices mm. and uh, who are the, the people and the stakeholders that I impact with those choices and how am I managing all parts of my ecosystem in my life to the best possible outcome at that particular time because context changes everything. Um, and so the things I like to think about are, first of all, am I really conscious of the decisions I'm making and who I'm impacting in that time? So end of financial year, it's always a busy time for companies. So I'm always able to say to my family, hey, the next month's going to be a bit crazy. So not too many uh, family dinners this month. I've got those things on. So we, we communicate. Mm. Uh, the second thing I like to do is just do a little bit of a retroactive look. I, I found... Um, I was beating myself up and feeling really guilty about all the things I was messing up. Like I didn't do tuck shop and Lucy's crying because I didn't do tuck shop or I couldn't make swim carnival or, you know, or I'd missed something at work. And so if I looked at how I did on like a micro moment, like a day, I felt like I was like failing on all fronts. I thought this is crazy. So I really try and only look back once a quarter and go last quarter did I make the right choices around my ecosystem? You know, as a wife, as a mother, as a friend, as a manager, as a teammate, as an employee, um, am I spending the right amount of time with customers uh, internally with uh, my team on strategy? And then if I feel like I've got things out of balance, what do I need to course correct to make it better next quarter? But um, I stop looking for balance. I look for you know managing my stakeholders, managing my choices, communicating my choices to others so we can work through you know, the things that we need to cover if that's going to be, you know, crazy time for work or, or a crazy time at home and I might need some more coverage at work. Mm. Who needs to help me get to the best possible outcome for all of my stakeholders at this point, including myself, by the way? Because, mm. you know, where they say put your own oxygen mask on first. That's true, that's that true. Lesson a bit, <laughs> I think I learned that lesson a bit later, to be honest, So, and it's what I'm trying to hold on to. Yeah, so it's communicate effectively and well and, and maybe pause occasionally, you're saying quarterly, just to reflect on how you're using your time and, and just continuing, continually readjusting how you spend that time where you feel there's yeah. gaps. Absolutely. And so, you know, we, all, we all get to a point where we might get a bit out of whack. You know, I know for me when I get really busy, the last person I look after is me. Yes. And then okay. actually it's probably not a good thing. Yeah. So just, you know, give the course correction and ask for the help you need. How important is that, do you think, Pip, when you think about looking after yourself and talking about putting the oxygen mask on first? How do you treat yourself? How do you, what do you do to actually get that joy sometimes? And you're so giving, you're you're extending yourself often beyond your capacity, but you're doing that because you're playing all these roles. 
how do you actually relax? Yeah, look, I think about a couple of things. And actually, you know, believe it or not, you know, last year when COVID started, one of the things is I donated my commute to my health and I picked up like an early morning workout and it really created the space. And as we came out of lockdown, I kept that commitment to myself. So I really try and protect time for me. And that's generally first thing in the morning. I either go for a PT session, you know, a light jog. Um, and that is something that I've, I've worked really hard on um, in retaining it for me. So be really protective of that yes. time because it's easy to give it up. Um, figure out the things that you want to say no to. I'll be honest, like I get, you know, you do get asked a lot, you know, be at the ISA, get asked the opening of an envelope. Um, and, you know, because, you know, and I love to help people. People go, can you mentor me? Can I get time with you to talk about that? If I said yes to everything, then I couldn't do my day job and I couldn't no. look after my family. Yeah. So the art of saying no is really, really important. So choose what you want to spend your time on. Back to that thoughtfulness. Be really clear on where you want to spend your time. Be really thoughtful on how much time you can give to that. And when you say no to people, which sometimes you will need to do, help them find somebody else, you know, somebody else maybe in the team who can speak at that event or somebody else who might be a really good mentor for them. Um, but having people know when, when they ask you, I always love, love people with the courage to reach out and, and ask for that time. I really admire that. Um, but you, know, you probably can't always you know, do all of it. So be super respectful and then try and help them find somebody else as part of that. Really good tip. So let's talk about Salesforce and the work you're doing to assist retailers. We've seen a really powerful shift in trends due to COVID, in particular trends in digital and innovation. So what are some of the things you're seeing from where you're sitting? Yeah, look, it is, um, I think back on the last 12 months, and, and Paul, you would know this better than me, I, the trends we were seeing around online and being, you know, channel of choice, thinking about omni-channel, you know, the desire to get closer to the customer, to create unique and personalised experiences, those things were all happening. But I think what happened this last year is it all got accelerated. Mm. Um, the speed and the need for that change to happen came um, because the world changed around us and your other options went away. And I think um, so many of the retailers I've been speaking to, you know, they either had started in, in a more traditional slash bricks and mortar, and they were thinking about what's my future into digital and, you know, how, you know, slow might it take it and, it, you know, over time I want to get to this place. When the world changed and the door shut, um, but the consumer demand was still there, um, what we saw is amazing companies just quickly resh reshaping to be digital first. So it wasn't let me do this and then I'll get to digital. It was suddenly a need to deliver that digital experience first. And I think at the start, I would say I saw a lot of companies respond and stabilise. So it was how do I just get online if I'm not? How do I just do e-commerce if I'm not? And it wasn't yet necessarily at a place of maybe delightful customer experiences or single view of the customer or life cycles and journeys. It just I just had to transact. That was survival for many organisations at that point. After a period of time, as people stabilised, the discussion from you know, the retailers we're speaking to is it's great that we've got this transactional capability, but actually I want more. My customers want more. How do I take this incredible experience I might have had as somebody came into my store or into my physical experience, how can I take that sense of um, connection, brand love, and create a digital experience for that? Um, how do I stay connected? How do I think about 
live chat and video? How do I think about social in there? Yes. And I think you know, it is now at the point where retailers have said, great, we can transact, but, but our customers want more. They want personalised, they want connected, they want relevance, um, and how do now we help them step into that, that next phase? Mm, absolutely. And another issue that a lot of retailers are facing at the moment is, is the skill shortage and the lack of skilled migrants coming into the country. What kind of impact is that having on business, do you think? And are you seeing that in Salesforce as well? Yeah, Paul, very much so, to be honest. So I think with um, with this bringing the future forward, um, I think what happened at that point is organisations, in order to bring the future forward, their imperative was digital first. Mm. And so suddenly there was this massive spike in requirements for people with digital skills in, in your organisation, in your partner's organisation, and even in my world, in, in the world of vendor world. So you suddenly had massive demand and, and you, at the same time our borders shut. So, you know, Australia has driven its um, population growth predominantly from you know, skilled migration over the last you know, decades. And with that shutting down, the typical you know, influx that you could tap into uh, reduced and the demand levels went up. So it's like, you know, it's a, it's a delight for some people mm. and a disaster for others, isn't it? Yes. Um, so I think, you know, right now, what, you know, we're certainly really focused on the skills side of things. We, um, we have a, a tool um, called Trailhead which is available to anyone because I think part of the way we've got to help solve this is reskilling. Mm. We've got to be able to help people whose jobs are being disrupted by automation and technology or just competitive pressures changing and those jobs no longer being in Australia. So we have an incredible population here we should think about reskilling. And as we do that, we know that most people can't go back to a three-year uni degree. They've got bills. They've got mortgages. Yes. So the more we can think about micro-credentials and reskilling people so they can get the credentials that build up over time to a new degree, that will help them with pathways. And if we can help them sequence those credentials to actually meet the current demand of jobs, then we can help them reskill with Salesforce admin skills to be able to get a job today um, yes. that is in high demand but that they can build on for a career path. So uh, we do that with Trailhead and, and we make that freely available. I also think, you know, there's other area in Australia specifically we have some of the best outcomes on the planet for tertiary outcomes for women. We have some of the worst outcomes in regard to workforce participation for women. Mm. So we have an incredibly educated um, talent pool of, of women whose participation in the workplace is, is lower, either yes. that's part-time or not at all. If we can target something to bring these, um, that incredible asset of women back into our workforce, not only will we see you know, productivity improve, but we'll also, I think, um, tap in and, and create more diversity in our workforce, which I think we can all benefit from. Absolutely. It, it sort of requires business to work with academia and government, to be honest, to actually able to help subsidise and incentivise uh, this real reskilling of the workforce. So you raised some really good points um, in that. And I think we just touched on diversity inclusion earlier, um, and you, you mentioned it again now. I know you're a massive diversity and inclusion um, advocate, a massive advocate for the LGBTI community. I, I'm going to start with the uh, diversity and inclusive workplaces. As a female CEO, do you think there are still barriers for women in the industry? And if so, how do we overcome them? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the numbers would tell you that that's, that is the case. Um, when you look at the number of female CS, CEOs in the ASX um, 200, I think it's about 12 or something right now, um, we're about 30% of board um, in the boardroom. So mm. if we believe, and I happen to believe this, that there's just as many smart and talented women as there are men, 
then something is going on in the system. Often we talk to pipeline as being a challenge, and it can be, certainly in the world of technology where when you go to um, STEM degrees, we're still not seeing uh, 50-50. But even in areas where we have solved pipeline, if you think about lawyers, in Australia about 60% of law graduates are female. When you get to the boardroom of the law law firms, you don't see 60%. So, yes, we need to get pipeline working better, but we also have to understand what are the system changes that we need to drive through the life cycle of a you know, person's career to make sure that every person you know, of any gender can have equal access, equal opportunity and equal pay. Yes. And that's still still not there. I think we've got about a 18% in, uh, gender pay gap in, in this country. Mm. So, you know, organisations like ours, Salesforce, we do um, a gender pay review every year. And in fact, you know, Mark and the leadership team spent over $15 million um, closing the gender pay gap when it's been identified. Now, mm. often that is for a female, but it is also we've found pay gaps for men too and we've mm. um, fixed that when we've found it. You've got to make sure that you um, are creating great systems internally so that when you see things like as you know, when you're taking parental leave, my, my husband couldn't have children, I mean, I could do that. <laughs> um, but when you go on parental leave, are you creating great parental leave? Yes. Are you providing um, secondary care leaves? Because we really want to make sure that we are encouraging uh, the men in um, in our world to also take leave. Is it uh, is your parental leave inclusive of all types of families and making sure it doesn't matter if it's adopted or same sex, do you give everybody the same right to that opportunity? And that's me. Yeah. We absolutely do. And, and certainly for females also, when you're taking parental leave, um, you don't have to pay somebody superannuation. And females, when they retire, have quite a, a super gap. So pay super when um, you're out on parental leave to make sure that we're not disadvantaging women for being, you know, for being the only gender that can have children. Yeah. So um, I think there's things we can do to help close that pay gap, you know, review it, pay it when you find it, pay super, create great parental leave programs, and then make sure, you know, when you're recruiting, we do panel interviews to make sure we try and overcome bias in that panel. Mm. We try and make sure we uh, have everybody has to, to do hiring in our organisation. You have to do inclusive hiring practice um, enablement as part of that. So we are aware of our own biases, how might that come across through uh, in our interview and who we say hire and not hire for. Really make sure we're investing in that um, skills and capability to overcome you know, what we all have, which is you know unconscious bias. So, so quality of pay, policy, specifically around parental leave is really important. And there's this cultural element, I guess, Pip, Pip, that comes down to leadership, which you clearly display, but not organize, all organisations do that. So when you think about, you know, we want to get beyond just gender when we think about diversity, we, we might just touch on LGBTIQ and um, your view of why that's important part of, you know, your thinking when, when you think about what you're doing at Salesforce, but you were, you were part of the leadership team through marriage equality. I'd just be keen if you were to share how you got involved and, you know, what part you played and, you know, maybe why you think the LGBTI community is important. Yeah, well, I think um, if you think humans are important, then the LGBTIQ community is important because we're all humans. And um, gender equality and LGBTIQ equality is actually a human rights issue. Um, it is not um, an issue for women. It is not an issue if you're gay. It's actually, as a human, are we giving every single human being the, you know, the same, um, the same access? And clearly that has not been the case um, as we have seen. 
So, um, okay, I have to say it started for me very early in my life. My parents taught me a lot about that. They were very much, um, I was one of five kids, two boys and three girls. I can tell you, you did, um, you know, do you hear my dog scratching? <laughs> yes, the we door? Can. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to get that little scratch and go out and I can let him out. He's going to go crazy. This is the challenges of working from home. (laughs) Oh, hilarious. I'll start again if you like. Yes. Okay. Um, Yeah, so obviously, uh, you know, the first time we met was actually back in the marriage quality um, campaign. And the reason, you know, I, you know, got involved because like gender equality, LGBTI equality, it is, it's actually a human rights issue because we're all human. And, uh, you know, I'm really passionate about making sure that everybody has the same access um, to opportunities, pay, respect. Um, so clearly, you know, that hasn't been the case. That hasn't been the case you know, for women. It hasn't been the um, case for our LGBTIQ colleagues and friends. And so you know, my parents taught me very early on that you uh, you need to treat people equally. They certainly did that between my brothers and sisters, but also that you had to make a stand. And, and, and I think when I was a kid, the word allied, you know, Probably meant something to do with the war, you know, like it's yeah. like these are the people you went to war with. Um, and, you know, for me, I think being an ally is important, but I actually think being an activist is even more important. And that's something when I was um, running Microsoft in Australia and talking to the team about what was important to them, you know, as, you know, the whole, you know, country started talking about marriage equality, you know, people, you know, in the organisation said this is really important and I loved seeing the activism from uh, the, the team and when it came to, you know, just signing, you know, the letter to support that, you know, absolutely was one of the first to do that. And then um, when they asked somebody, when they came and said, would you, you know, be one of the faces of the campaign, um, I didn't even hesitate. I was like, absolutely. And they cracked me up, though, when it happened because people came up to me and said, oh, I didn't know you were gay. <laughs> and, you know, after having and I went, I'm I'm not. I uh, didn't think that was a requirement. Yeah, well, look, we're, remember, all, we're always we're always recruiting, Pip. That's the whole thing. So, <laughs> not a problem. Not a problem. But um, one of my employees said to me, it was a great story. Paul. She said to me, um, my my grandmother after the legislation passed um, didn't pass. Well, sorry, passed marriage equality. Mm. Her grandmother said to her, "I'm so pleased." She said, "Because every time you were leaving the country, I used to cry because I thought her, and she was gay, yes. and her grandmother thought she's going to go overseas and get married, and her grandmother wanted to be her wedding, and she couldn't travel overseas." And you know, just having you know one of the team tell me that story about the impact in her life. We want everybody. Everybody's grandmother should be able to go to everybody's um, wedding, and and we need to make sure that happens. That's a, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing. I think um, you know you've been an absolute uh, amazing advocate and ally, and I think you know you know we're really um, happy to claim you as an ally as well as a community. Um, and I think you know the message for me out of what you've just said is that you know it's important that leaders, particularly leaders in position, the powerful positions, use it for good. You know, and they use it to to drive positive change, and you've certainly been doing that, Pip. So all credit to you, and thank you for all that you do. Um, now, I wanted to sort of just reflect a little bit on advice you might want to give a younger person, particularly young women starting out in the industry. What would it be? Oh, look, um, as some young women say to me, I'm concerned if I, you know, come into the industry, how I'm going to be treated. And I would say to people, hey, you know what, come in and be the change that you want to see because you know, the greatest things that I've ever done in my career were never easy. They weren't the things I'm most proud of were not the easy things. They're the things I don't even remember. Mm. The challenging things, you know, the, the big 
very audacious goals, the real positive change that you have made in a culture or an ecosystem, those are the things I'm most proud of. So don't let what has been a history stop you taking a step forward, um, going and participating and driving and making something better. Actually, have that fuel you to make to make a company better, to make a culture better, to make a country better. And, and you'll be nothing prouder you know, than you'll be if you do just that. And you'll be surprised how many people around there, around you there will be to help you be successful. Mm. You really will. I, I'm a big optimist, I have to say, at the end of the day. Mm. And I have never been short of people who have been um, supportive of me and, and the change and positive changes I've wanted to drive. Fantastic, fantastic. I, I also, you know, when you think about um, some of the other areas that I know you've been really passionate about, sustainability also comes to mind. Um, it's become a key issue. It's certainly been a big driver for the ARA, but um, a big, a key issue for a lot of retailers. And I know it's an important issue for you at Salesforce. So, so I'd be interested to hear um, from yourself how you see the role of retail in driving sustainability outcomes and how is Salesforce thinking about sustainability? Yeah, look, I think it's a great question and um, I always thought I was pretty passionate about it, but I tell you what, my two daughters challenged me to be even mm. more progressive around it. There is a generation behind us that deserve us doing our job to leave yes. this planet in a better place. And all the data that I'm seeing, Paul, is customers are also saying we want to deal with companies with values and companies who are thinking about their role in society and their role around sustainability. So I believe great organisations, especially in retail, who embrace sustainability at the core, they're going to attract um, this generation of consumers who will not just look at the product but how you made it, the waste yeah. you created in making it, and, and that should be a competitive advantage mm. for you. You'll attract those customers. So sustainability across you know, production, packaging, supply chain, really important. Uh, we just um, actually launched a product that you called Sustainability Cloud, where we have um, organisations now help them track their, their carbon footprint and actually wow. create the right reporting and the transparency because customers are going to want to look for transparency mm. in that. And, and we do a, a thing every year called the Stakeholder Impact um, Report where we set our, our goals and we're transparent about how we do. We don't always hit them, but we own it mm. when we don't. Um, and I think a big part of sustainability right now is using digital to help you get there. So how you might track your um, your digital or your, your carbon footprint, how you might use your um, technology to make your supply chain better um, and track that, how you might take wastage out of that. So more and more we're seeing customers or organisations go direct to consumer. So still working through channels. So they're sort of a, a retailer but maybe shipped direct from the warehouse and just move less, move the product around less, so it has a less of a carbon footprint. So technology is a way to still preserve the customer experience and all of that, but also you know, manage the the process to get it where it needs to go with the lowest possible footprint. Mm, well, you've, uh, look, I, I think many listeners wouldn't have thought about technology and the role it plays in that whole supply chain transparency. In fact, making the job easier in many ways, at least having um, a central depository to have all the information that you need. So that's something, um, you know, we probably want to talk to you about at a later point too, because I'd like to get more information around how we can help retailers with that. So it's, it's certainly well raised. Now let's talk about leadership more broadly. Is it something that came naturally to you? Did you always have ambitions to make it to the top of your field? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, I think, uh, I don't know, like I, um, if I go back as far as high school, Paul, I, um, 
I don't know. I would never call my, myself the lady. You know, I wasn't the, you know, the head boy or head girl. I wasn't the, it was not my thing. I was a bit quite independent, I would say, but not necessarily um, putting myself into that position. And, and I would say it wasn't until a bit later I even had the aspiration. I think I struggled for a period of time to articulate my aspirations. I didn't feel comfortable. Like I felt that if I told people I aspired to a promotion or a job mm. that was more senior, that it would come across as arrogant mm. or, you know, entitled. And I really don't like those attributes. So I didn't know how to um, declare my ambitions and still hold on to, you know, humility, which is a value I, I care about. Um, but it was a, an old um, boss of mine who um, really helped me think that through. And, and I say to people now, two things can be true at the same time. You can have ambitions and you can be humble. You can want to grow your career and you can still be a team player. Oh. And sometimes I think people struggle. So I certainly oh. struggled to hold those two things. So if I told people my aspiration is to be managing director of Microsoft, I, in my head, I would have thought that was like arrogant. It's oh. not arrogant. How great is it to have a career ambition? Somebody wants to cure cancer. That's awesome. Yeah. That's an ambition we should be proud of. Somebody wants to go to the Olympics. We should be proud of that and support people. We should also support people with having that, having that career. Now, how you do it, how you get there is important. You yeah. don't need to walk over other people and, you know, create, you know, destruction to get there. You can do it whilst helping others. You can do it by reflecting goodness onto other people and shining a light on the good works of your team. So you you can find ways to you know articulate your ambition and also honor all your other values, which took me a little while to figure out oh. how to do that and then de- you know sort of declare both things at the same time. Um, and I would say I'm still learning. When I, oh. I think the day I stopped learning as a as a team member, an employee, a leader is a bad day. I, I really don't want to get yeah. to a place where I have a fixed mindset. I do not have all the answers. I want to create a sort of sense of curiosity in my in my in my method, um, which looks for good ideas from anywhere because mm. they don't have to come from me, and frequently they don't. Um, and yeah, and I love it. I love I do my best work working in a team. I love working with other people; it brings me great joy. So, so when you reflect on your career, do you think what lessons have you learned about yourself? Today, because um, it sounds like you do take the time to pause and think and reflect on your time. I think if you take that, what 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 are the what are the what have you learned about yourself? Oh, I'm still learning about myself. I would say, um, I would say I've learned I, I have more courage maybe than I thought I had. I am happy and more comfortable um, than ever to news you know speak up and speak truth to power i don't know if you've heard that like i yes. i feel it's more important to um have the courageous uncomfortable conversation than leave things unspoken um and i and i really try and you know, set a really good standard for you know, speaking that truth um even if um it's really uncomfortable or has has consequence so i have mm. a lot more courage in that way than i than i maybe give myself credit to um, before I've um, I've really learned to embrace my strengths and not try to beat myself up on my weaknesses, but acknowledge my weaknesses and make sure that I have people around me who have those things in strength. So yes. you know, really just being open and, and vulnerable with your team around what you're good at, what you're not, 
um, and making sure you know everybody, uh, everybody, and and the same for me with them, making sure I, you mm. know I know that for them because I think that level of um, openness helps everybody sort of work through that. So I've learned a lot around that. Um, I would say I know that I get joy at work when I'm working somewhere where I feel aligned on values yes. um, and there's just really high trust. And I, and I, I know I need to have fun. I just I, I love to work and I don't think I could work somewhere I didn't have fun. It's just it's just it's who I am. I, I love a good laugh. I love you know, um, connecting with other people and, and doing that. And if I'm in a world where I can't be having fun, I'm probably not doing my best work as well. Is there anything you'd do differently if you had your time over? Oh, yeah, lots, <laughs> lots, lots. You know, back to courageous conversations and courageous decisions. When you know you've made a bad decision, I think sometimes I'd left it too long to correct those. Because either I wasn't prepared to admit I hadn't made the you know the best decision, or owning up to it, I felt vulnerable, or, or you know what would be the implication of that, you know. But I I learned I, I watched a very senior leader I worked with once, high a very high profile hire from outside of the company, and five weeks later, um, say goodbye to that person. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying to me, he said, "I knew I'd made a mistake pretty quickly." And I could try and deal with it, but the damage it would have caused, you know, is far more important than my ego about getting getting a, making a bad hire and throwing it out straight away. And I thought, wow. And it was very public, very high profile. I thought, wow, oh, that's just that's so courageous. So yeah. there's times I probably should have made those, you know, when I realised I made a mistake, fix it earlier. Um, and the next one is, I'll say, it's an interesting one because I feel a bit torn on it. And it's sometimes I didn't listen to my gut. Mm. Okay, but I think sometimes when I talk to people about listening to your gut, that you've got to watch bias in there, okay? Because sometimes when you listen to your gut, you've got some bias in there, but also your gut is some years of experience telling you something. And so the couple of times when I've gone against my gut because I'm thinking, no, I need to just, you know, maybe give this other person this opportunity or do this, and I've gone against it, it actually did not work. And so, you know, do trust yourself. As long as you've checked yourself for bias and maybe had somebody you can bounce at again, there are there is instinct, and that instinct is years of experience also talking to you. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's ex- it's one of my biggest learnings, to be honest with you, in my career. So I completely it resonates um, what you're saying. So completely agree with that and i think it uh, as you said you just got to keep your possibly your ego in check sometimes but your bias in check but um you know your gut's a really important way physiologically of letting you know that you're either on track or not on track so you raise some really good points there now you have a really big job pip i'd be interest, interested to hear from you what are the issues that are keeping you up at night at the moment because you must have to deal with a lot of um, you know, a lot of issues uh, and a lot of opportunities, but there must be things that do keep you um, up at night. What, what would they be? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. First is um, keeping the promises we've made. Mm. And so we have amazing customers, Mecca. You know, you know, Jo is thinking about a massive transformation. She's got an incredible bricks and mortar footprint, but she is, you know, embarking on an incredible digital transformation. And when with a you know an amazing you know founder and company like that, and they're placing a bet on our technology to help them do that. I think we cannot let them down. No. So I you know say we um, we don't celebrate when we sign a deal. We celebrate when the customer goes live 
and they are doing the thing that actually our product enables them to do. So I you know, already do some great work with Mecca, but I already think about how am I going to help Joe and her team deliver on a digital transformation and that whole personalized experience that they want to take to their customers. If you hear Joe talk about her customers, oh. she's the most customer-centric leader. It's incredible. So um, I think about how do we make sure we're doing our part to help our customers get to the transformation that they're after as quickly as possible um, at the best possible value of time, speed, and, and not let them down. So that's the thing that is constantly on my mind. Uh, the second is, you know, my team. Um, and you talked about it from, you know, skill shortage to uh, dealing with the stress of COVID. We've had our teams in Victoria, multiple shutdowns, Sydney right now shut down. I'm really, you know, concerned about you know, just the mental and physical well-being of our team. Uh, some of them being separated from family for a very long time. Uh, some of them have, you know, done a lot of homeschooling. Uh, how can I and the Salesforce team do the best possible job in supporting our employees through just, you know, incredibly ambiguous times and also making sure that the value proposition we're giving to them continues to be, you know, competitive and engaging and inclusive and you can never rest on your laurels. So certainly continue to focus on um, our fabulous um, teammates. Um, and then, you know, third is, you know, maybe just making sure that we are continuing to, to balance the, you know, business being the greatest platform for change to have it continue to help you do good and, and do well. And when we help our customers, we're helping, you know, on the, um, helping your customers do well, but how are we being thoughtful about giving back? Oh. Uh, we have so many different types of customers and I think it's really important for every organization, especially one like ours, to make sure we're giving back to the community in which we operate and serve. So how are we making sure our volunteering is impactful? How are we making sure we are giving back to um, our community, um, the grants that we do? How do we make sure that we are thinking about, you know, our reconciliation action plan that we're just putting into place right now? What is the, you know, the public policy that we need to be engaging on to support our customers and our people and our community? So, those probably the, the big things, you know, looking after our customers, make, keeping our promises, making sure our people through a pretty challenging time have got the right level of support, making sure we're really in, you know, challenging ourselves to, to give back uh, really appropriately and meaningfully into, into our community. Pip Marlowe, this has been an absolute delight and pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining us in the Amex Lounge for some retail therapy. Congratulations on all the work you're doing at Salesforce and all the best for the future. Thanks, Paul. Total pleasure. Joining me for a quick fireside chat is Tristan Harris, co-CEO at Harris Farm Markets, a family-owned fresh food grocer with 26 stores across Sydney and New South Wales and home to around 3,000 employees. During the pandemic, you worked closely with American Express to expand your online business, partnering with them to develop co-branded delivery boxes and participating in Amex offers. Why is it so important that your customers know and are aware that they can use their Amex card with Harris Farm? Well, Paul, I don't know about you, but I use my Amex card whenever I can. Absolutely every given opportunity. I love collecting the points. I like all of the benefits that I get from using my Amex card. And so if your customers don't know that you're offering them a service, 
yeah, well, you're just not going to get the kudos that you deserve. And so we are offering our, our customers a service by allowing them to use American Express. And, uh, and so we want to do everything we can to make sure that they understand. We know that an Amex card member's purchase size is greater both in store and online, and that they show increased loyalty towards merchants who accept without surcharge. You've recently flagged that you're looking to expand your store footprint, almost doubling it over the next four years. How important will it be to attract loyal and high-value customers to fuel this growth? I think the basics of strategy say that you choose the customers that are worth keeping and you focus on those customers and deliver for those customers. And the crossover in uh, in brand affinity between ourselves and American Express is incredibly tight. We were both recently named in the top five premium brands in Australia. And uh, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind, and I'm sure in American Express's mind, that our two brands belong together. Our customers are the same customers. So by focusing on American Express customers, we're also focusing on ours and vice versa. Tristan, thanks so much for joining us and all the best for the future. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for joining us on the Amex Lounge for some retail therapy. Make sure you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. For more information about the work we do at the Australian Retailers Association, head to our website, retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, wherever you love to connect. All the links can be found in the show notes. I can't wait to talk retail therapy with Australia's retail leaders and share these conversations with you, the future leaders, business owners and innovators of the industry.